And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in. The rules around voting have always been the subject of debate, but in recent years, voting and election integrity have become controversial political issues. That's in large part because of former President Trump's contention that the 2020 election was stolen. Trump continues to make that claim, even though it's been repeatedly rejected where it counts, in court. Still, what some call the big lie has had a big political impact. Polls show that while most Americans trust that elections are fair, among Republicans that number drops, and drops a lot. Some polls say only about a third of Republicans trust the results of elections. In Minnesota, it's the Secretary of State's job to oversee elections, and Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon joins me this hour to talk about elections, voting, fairness, and integrity. Steve Simon is a DFLer. He was first elected in 2014 after serving in the Minnesota House, and he's seeking a third term in November. Steve Simon, thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot for having me. Let me tell our listeners, uh, if you have a question for the Secretary of State about voting or voting integrity, give us a call. 651-227-6000 is the number. 651-227-6000. If you still need an 800 number, that's 800-242-2828. Call with your question. Steve Simon, I've been uh, talking to some of the Republican candidates for governor the past few weeks here. And uh, while many of them say they believe Joe Biden was... He won here in Minnesota. They're reluctant to say that the election was fair across the country. Now, I know you don't supervise elections in other states, but do you think Joe Biden was fairly elected? Absolutely. I think the 2020 election nationally and in particular in Minnesota was fair, accurate, honest and secure. And that's not just what I say. That's what the former attorney general, William Barr, said from the Trump administration. That's what the current FBI director appointed by former President Trump has said over and over again in sworn testimony. And that's what over 60, 60 federal and state court judges have said when presented with any allegations of wrongdoing or misconduct. So at some point, we have to point out the lie that the 2020 election was other, anything other than fundamentally fair, accurate, honest, and secure. There were some special uh, rules or special exceptions to the rules made because of the pandemic. Um, did those in any way here in Minnesota alter the, the election or make it any less fair? No, they made it more fair. Uh, during 2020, there were some one-time only COVID-related changes, some made by courts, some made by the legislature after bipartisan agreement consensus after vigorous debate. And those things made it healthier and safer for people to vote. They increased confidence in our system. I think I asked you this before the election two years ago, um, and I'm going to ask you again, just, just to get you on the record. Um, some say you made an end run around the legislature by agreeing with the people who were suing the state to, to, to do some of these, uh, e make it easier to vote remotely, I guess, uh, because of the pandemic. Did you, was that your intention? And di is that what you did? Did you make an end run around the legislature? Absolutely not. I did what my oath commands me to do, which is defend and uphold the Constitution, both of Minnesota and the United States of America. These kinds of agreements are pretty common. Uh, they happen with secretaries of state across the country, and they've happened in Minnesota with all of my recent and modern predecessors. And the great part about these particularly agree agreements is they're settlement agreements that are blessed by a court. But not only that, everyone, everyone has a chance to intervene and be heard as to why this isn't a good idea. That happened. There was vigorous oral argument and written argument. And after the court in these cases blessed these settlement agreements as being in the best interests of the voters of Minnesota, after that happened, everyone stood down. Republicans, Democrats, the Biden campaign, the Trump campaign, they had the opportunity to lodge further objections and take it further, and they didn't. So in the end, everyone, all the major political actors agreed, and we went forward with a successful election in Minnesota where for the third time in a row... Minnesota was number one in America in voter turnout. And you don't get there at nearly 80% of turnout in Minnesota. You just don't, as a matter of common sense, get there unless the vast majority of people have fundamental confidence in the soundness and integrity of the system. So if people are bringing up this complaint again now, um, would you say it's, it's groundless or, or it's uh, 
re- revisionist history? I'd say both, and then some. Um, 2020 was an extraordinary time. It called for extraordinary measures. Minnesota was not alone in embracing, either legislatively or through the courts, uh, changes, one-time changes to election rules that benefited voters. The bottom line is it's about the voters, their health, their safety, their access, and the overall integrity of the system, all of which we guaranteed in Minnesota. Will there be any um, special rules or allowances for this year's election? Not any special rules that sort of snap back to normal after the year. I don't think so. I haven't seen that at the legislature. 2020 was pretty extraordinary. That was pre-vaccine America at the dawn of the COVID age, you might say. We know a lot more now. But no, there's plenty happening at the legislature, but these are all debates about permanent changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Steve Simon. He is the Minnesota's Secretary of State, and in that job, he oversees elections uh, and uh, talking about what happened in 2020, what's going to happen in the future. Are elections uh, secure? Are, can you trust them? Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation. If you have a question, give us a call, 651-227-6000. 651-227-6000 is the number. You know, um, one thing... We do know that happened uh, was that uh, there was an attempted hacking into the system here in Minnesota by Russians, presumably. Um, do you know if that's still going on? Is that still a problem? That is one of our foremost concerns. 2016, just to remind your listeners, was, was the time that changed election administration forever. You can sort of divide election administration into two halves life before 2016 and life after 2016. Because in that year, Minnesota was one of the 21 states whose election infrastructure, not ballots, nobody's ever alleged credibly that any ballot was attempted to be changed. But in terms of the databases and the infrastructure, there was an attempt by a foreign uh, adversary, by Russia, to somehow infiltrate that in Minnesota and 20 other states. Now, it didn't work. In Minnesota, the system worked, our defenses worked, the bad guys never got in. But the point is that they tried. They wanted to. And so since that time, we've worked hand in glove with intelligence authorities in Washington, D.C. We have regular uh, intelligence briefings, including one just last week by FBI and Department of Homeland Security. And we get hands-on real-world cyber help, you might say, from national authorities, from federal authorities on an ongoing basis. We're doing that this year. Even though this issue has somewhat receded from the headlines, It hasn't receded from our consciousness. It's a huge part of the work that we do. I will say that recent events in Ukraine have sort of resurfaced this issue because Mm. a lot of people are wondering, what does a cornered Russia do in a situation like this? Might they lash out against the United States or NATO allies allies through uh, cyber means? And so we're we're sort of on alert about that. And as ever, we're being really um, uh, attentive to hardening and strengthening our systems. You say they could get into the databases. Uh, what? Any idea what they would try to do if they got in there, or what? Sure, what kind of mischief they would cause. Sure, without giving a roadmap to the bad guys, I can think of a lot of forms of mischief they could they could pursue. Suffice it to say, they could try to create chaos. They could try to create confusion. They could try to shut down certain systems right when they're in high demand. Say on election day or the days leading up to election day. We don't want any of that to happen. We don't want it even to be a remote possibility, which is why we work so hard and so consistently on that issue. And by the way, it's not just our office. We're only good as our weakest link. Putting on an election is a team sport, I always say. It's us, it's the counties, it's the cities. And so we have a a team in our office that is dedicated to nothing else but making sure that our partners are also secure, every county, every city, and so forth. And so that collaborative effort is what it means to make our systems secure. Talking with Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon this hour. Let's uh, take a caller. Ed is on the line from Howard Lake. Ed, hi, go ahead. Uh, Just a minute, I'll turn this off. Hello? Okay. Yeah, hi, you're on. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just, uh, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm I'm an independent. And uh, seldom do people I vote for get elected. But this whole election thing, I will believe, I mean, before this, I always believed it was fair. But I heard, I've heard enough to know, to right now have a uh, couple suspicions. And what would solve those is independent auditors. And I want to ask Steve Simon when and how often he will get an independent auditor in there. And second of all, I've heard uh, 
I don't think, I don't know if Steve Simon said it, but I've heard other election officials say, yeah, there was a little bit of fraud, but it wasn't enough to make a difference. Before I heard that, I thought elections were perfect. Hmm. So those, those are two concerns, mostly totally independent auditors, not elected officials, not appointed officials, independent auditors. Okay. Steve Simon, how do you answer that question? Yeah, thanks, Ed, for the question. It gives me an opportunity to say what the considerable auditing and review safeguards are in present law right now. We have a vigorous, multi-layered way of auditing in an independent way elections right now. And when people come to understand that, I know just from my own experience, and polling shows this too across the country, people come away with a lot more confidence. So in Minnesota, not only does our office do post-election audits and reviews, across Minnesota, but even before that and before the election is certified, every county in Minnesota must, there's no getting around it, there's no getting out of it, every county in Minnesota must do post-election audits and reviews. Uh, They have to do them on a random basis. There's a formula in place. So in smaller counties, it's fewer areas. In larger counties, it's more areas. And they must do that. And then we check their work. So we have a vigorous audit process already. Now, sometimes, I'm not suggesting Ed, But some people, when they talk about audits, what they really mean is a recount. They talk about an audit meaning kind of a do-over, that we should somehow hand count all the ballots. That's separate. That's a recount. But in terms of auditing and reviewing to a level of statistical reliability, we do that in Minnesota. We could always be fine-tuning it, and I'm open to Ed's or anyone else's ideas about how we can do that, and there's been a lot of discussion. But make no mistake, in Minnesota, one of the reasons we enjoy such high confidence and have such high turnout is because we have this multi-layered review by non-political folks in the counties, in the cities, who do a really good and rigorous job year in and year out. And, and it's not a recount, so what do they do? How do they audit an election? Yeah, what they'll do is they'll go into a particular precincts that are drawn at random, and they will do a review of a particular contest, sometimes multiple contests, and they will do sort of a hand selection or review of a particular count. You could call it a recount, but it's really making sure that the numbers line up and that the the ballots that were cast and counted for candidate A really were true and accurate. And so that happens in Minnesota each and every election in all 87 Minnesota counties. It must. And then we review that work. And then on top of that, we do our own that are randomly, randomly drawn at a public hearing that anyone can attend and anyone can watch just to make sure it's truly random and truly comprehensive. I want to get back to uh, the other question Ed, the caller, had, which was uh, he thought elections were perfect. But uh, you hear every now and then, in fact, even in, in the news this week, some, some uh, people uh, in court facing charges of cheating, election right. fraud. Right. No, no election is perfect. I've certainly never said that. If anyone else has, no, no system is perfect. But ours is really, really, to a high degree of accuracy, one of integrity and honesty. The episodes of misconduct of the kind that just made headlines that you referenced Hmm. are minuscule. They are microscopic. In fact, they are headlines because they're so rare. And so in Minnesota, as one federal judge said at one point during some litigation over the past couple of years, I think they they looked at the incidents of of, uh, misconduct in Minnesota, and it came out to something like seven ten thousandths of one percent over a 20 or 30 year period really small, really microscopic. Now, look, we all want the number to be zero. Anything above zero is, in some sense, unacceptable. But we got to put this in some rational perspective. We got 5.7 million people in Minnesota, 3.3 million voters last time, and our system is a clean and honest one, fundamentally. And if somebody does uh, cheat or, you know, try to use someone else's name to vote or cast two ballots... That's a felony, right? It's a felony, and we catch them. Now, we aren't an enforcement office. We're not a law enforcement office. We don't have guns and badges. So that responsibility falls to the FBI or to a local sheriff's office or police force. But, yeah, we're going to catch those folks if they try to double vote. And the headline that you just referenced recently was an example of the system working in the sense that the guy was caught and nobody, in the end, was able to register or vote impermissibly. Nobody. So that's a good thing. That's what we want in a system. Steve Simon, uh, the Secretary of State uh, for Minnesota, is our guest today. Let's go back to the phones. Julie is on the line in St. Paul. Hi, Julie. Hello. Um, I just have a comment about the safe, fair elections. I would encourage anyone who questions that to sign up to be an election judge. I've done that several times, 
and going to the training and then actually sitting there for 12 hours helping people vote, I was really impressed with the system and how thorough it is and how much work we did at the end of the night to reconcile everything and make sure that we counted everything and it all tallied up. I think it starts with us citizens, and we have the chance to be at the ground floor and make sure that it works out right, and I, I really applaud the system. I think our elections are very fair, and it's also just a thrill to be part of it. So that's my comment. I just encourage people. We always need people. Um, get out there and be an election judge and see for yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Steve Simon, reaction? Well, bless you, Julie, for doing that work. Uh, every time I meet an election judge, whether they've done it one time or years ago, it doesn't matter. I say thanks. We need 30,000 people every general election to be election judges. And just for the benefit of your listeners, it conjures images with the word judge of someone in a black robe with a gavel. It's not that. It's everyday people who sign up to help run the polling place. And we have such a great group of folks who do it year after year, but we're always trying to replenish the pool. And 2020 was a challenge in that way, and we were able to do it. Our office doesn't hire, train, or pay them, but in the counties and cities they do, and they do a great job of getting folks. It's a paid position. It's not a volunteer job. And it's a great way to get a glimpse of democracy. And as Julie said, uh, she's exactly right. In my experience, I've talked to a ton of people who came in with some suspicions about the election system. And 100% of them walk away from that experience knowing and understanding how good, how honest the system is, how truly hard it would be to pull off any kind of rigging. So many people would have to be in on this you know, so-called plot. It's a decentralized system. Remember, our office doesn't count any ballots ever. We don't lay a glove on any ballot. That all happens at the local level, cities, towns, counties, your friends and neighbors, election judges across the state, they're the ones doing that frontline work. We've uh, heard a couple of years ago that uh, there was a shortage of election judges or poll workers, whatever you want to call them. Um, is that still happening? Well, 2020 was a great test for that. You can imagine how difficult it was to get 30,000 people to do that job, particularly during pre-vaccine COVID. Somehow we got it done. It was a team sport. We worked at it with counties and cities and towns and we got it done. But even without COVID, it's always a challenge. Election judges tend to skew older. They tend more to be retirees. And so every jurisdiction that I know of, every county and city is always looking for new folks and frankly, some younger folks. And 2020 was a good example of how we were over to, uh, able to overcome a ton of challenges and get people in there to occupy those 30,000 spots. But if any one of your listeners is interested, you can either go to our website at mnvotes.org, that's mnvotes.org, or contact your local city or county. I would just say this one thing, Mike, about election judges. If you're 18 and over, first of all, you can do it starting at age 16. Great way to get some extra credit, a few bucks in your pocket, some leadership experience. If you're 18 and over, there's no geographic restriction. So if you live in Duluth and you want to be an election judge in Minneapolis and they'll have you, great. Vice versa too. So there's no geographic restriction. You're not limited to where you live. What, is it a partisan job? Do you, are there so many Republicans, so many Democrats? So under Minnesota law, there has to be some partisan balance. Not everyone in the uh, polling place has to declare a party, but some do, and there has to be a reasonable balance. That's a good thing. Okay. Let me uh, get back to this uh, subject of people's faith in the election, in, in the fairness of the election, because uh, earlier this year in Crow Wing County, the county board uh, voted to ask your office to conduct another audit, um, not necessarily because county officials or board members thought there was a problem, but they were getting so much concern from members of the public. Um, and, and Donald Trump won there by, I think, 30 points or more. So what's going on there? Well, in that particular instance, I think the county commissioners, I appreciate the tough spot they were in. They had a loud but small group of constituents who were agitating for this. And they said in their resolution, look, we have no doubts at all that our election in Crow Wing County was fair and accurate and honest and secure, but there are enough folks who have come to our meetings. Will you please do an audit? The problem is um, you can't launch this kind of thing on someone's hunch, whim, or feeling. And that's what it was. It was just someone felt something. And it was kind of a mission with no end. Uh, the, the language of what they were asking us to do was just 
hopelessly broad. It was just a sort of general fishing expedition for something that might have gone wrong, and that's that's just not good enough. We we can't have that, and we know. They're one of the best, by the way, growing County. Their county auditor is superb and a national leader. And we know that in that county in particular, things went well. They ran things by the book. There was no reason to upend or second guess the integrity of the result there or statewide. So how much does this um, questioning or this lack of faith in the system concern you? And what, if anything, do you see your role in correcting that? What could you do in a second term or a third term? Sorry to, to, to change that. Well, let me just quibble a little bit with your premise. Okay. Um, though there are some people who have voiced reservations about things outside of Minnesota, all evidence points to the fact that in Minnesota, we've got a good thing going and people know it. Again, we were almost 80% turnout, number one in America. And just as a matter of common sense, most people most people would just not show up in those numbers year after year after year if they didn't fundamentally think that the system was fair and accurate and honest and secure. That's not to say some voters disagree with me or want to add stuff to our laws or subtract stuff. Totally fine. That's democracy. But in terms of the fundamentals, the building blocks, they know it's honest. But I will say this. um, The number one threat I think right now generally to our democracy, is this wave of disinformation, particularly about 2020, but more broadly about the election system. And it's a problem. Um, There are just plain falsehoods out there being peddled by some folks for political reasons, sometimes for financial reasons, sometimes for both. And there are some good people who have been taken in by this. So my job and our job as those uh, of us who like to say we're in the democracy business is to do an even better job of acquainting or reacquainting people with the many features of our system in Minnesota, which are guarantees of trustworthiness. We can and should be doing an even better job uh, of communicating what those things are so that people who are taken in by some of the disinformation and the increasingly bizarre conspiracy theories about 2020 or generally will come to understand the features in Minnesota that time and time and time again have made us a leader. And they've made us a leader because the system is built on a structure, a decentralized, vigorously nonpartisan structure that guarantees good outcomes and honest outcomes. Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, our guest this hour. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Dan is on the line in Anoka. Hi, Dan. Hi. Uh, what federal laws must state attorney generals comply with to align themselves uh, with the mandates of those laws. And the follow-up question would be, because of the last general election, has there been more debate about doing away with the electoral college? Okay, I think we got that. A little hard to hear you on your phone there, Dan, but uh, federal laws that apply to the state, what, what, what does the state have to do to comply with federal laws? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand all of that first part of the question, but I'll take a crack at it. Yeah, it's sort of... Um, It's a delicate dance in the sense that um, mostly running elections are, you know, up is up to the states. And I think that's a good thing. But there are federal laws that we must adhere to. For example, the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 at the peak of the civil rights movement. There are certain things we've got to do. I'll give you one recent example. So in the last census, um, for the first time, the city of St. Paul triggered a federal law, or actually I should say Ramsey County, which is there is diverse enough now of a linguistic population in in Ramsey County that they must take steps under the Voting Rights Act for the first time ever um, to do certain things in a, in a bilingual way, to print certain things, to have election judges, and to really address um, language issues, the Hmong language in particular. That's one example of a federal law that we have to comply with. Okay, uh, let's uh, take another caller, Bill, on the line from Detroit Lakes. Hi, Bill. Hi. Say, I would like to know, I, I just started, uh, the first time I, I voted uh, was, or first time I voted absentee was last year, and I really liked it. Uh, I live a few miles outside of a small, outside of Detroit Lakes, and I don't drive, and that's really nice. So anyway... I would like to know, A, what I need to do now to get ready to vote this fall or as soon as possible. And B, I would like to know how that process would change 
if, say, Republicans were elected and they changed the rule uh, rules, how would the absentee voting process change, and would that and would that make it harder for me to vote? That's pretty much okay. it. Well, Bill, thanks for the call. I am a big fan of absentee voting. When I was in the legislature, I wrote the law that we now have that allows people to vote from home if they want to without having to provide an excuse or an explanation as you used to have to do. I was inspired by my own father, now passed, but who suffered from Parkinson's disease and had difficulty with mobility, and that really saved him. And it meant a lot to me, but not just me, but to millions of others across Minnesota. So I'm glad you took advantage of that. By the way, this isn't some niche service or boutique service for just a few people. In 2020, 58% of Minnesotans, a large majority, voted absentee, mostly from home and by mail. They chose that option. That had been on the books. That wasn't something new or radical. It had been on the books for seven years at that point. And that is in large part what saved the 2020 election. What got us to number one in the country was people didn't have to go to a polling place if they didn't want to. They could vote from their kitchen table. And I want to protect that. Not everyone does. So What you do if you want to vote absentee, probably the quickest and easiest way is to go to our website. It's mnvotes.org, mnvotes.org. And not now, but later on in the season, I would go there and order the ballot to come to you, as 58% or thereabouts of Minnesotans did. Increasingly, people are voting with their feet. They're telling us that in this modern world, they don't want to be told that they can only vote on a certain day in a certain physical location during certain hours. I like to vote that way. I'm a traditionalist. I love to go to the polling place. I love to greet the election judges. I love to take my two little kids there. But for some folks, whether it was people like my dad or people who were just busy raising a family, working, um, they like the flexibility of working from home. And we have the guarantees of security and trustworthiness that every voter has a right to expect. It's a clean system and it's an accessible system. I want to keep it that way. And uh, I want to fight off any attempt to make those laws more of a hassle for folks. Do you think we could hit that 58% uh, absentee again this time? My prediction is probably not. I think a lot of that was due to COVID. So I'm an example of that. My wife and I decided to lead by example, and we voted from home by mail in 2020. But as I said, we love going to the polling place. Mm. So as soon as we could, we did after 2020. I think there are a lot of people in that boat. If I had to predict... I would say it's probably going to shake out somewhere around a third, maybe more this time. It was 24% in 2018 before COVID. It more than doubled and went to 58%. So I don't think we're going back to 24. We'll probably level off and, and go down from 58. But look, Minnesotans have been hurt on this. They want the comfort and convenience and access of voting that way. They don't have to do it every time, but they want that option. Mm-hmm. We got to keep it and keep it strong. Some of the uh, Republicans in the state Senate, most of the Republicans running for governor, as far as I know, most likely your opponent this fall, all say that uh, Minnesotans should have to show a photo ID to vote. Uh, Do you support that? Oppose it? Where, Where do you come down on that? Well, remember, as your listeners will, many of them, we had a thorough discussion about this in 2012. There was a constitutional amendment proposal on the ballot, and Minnesotans, not by a small margin, said thanks but no thanks. And the reason they did, I think, was because that particular proposal and many of them that have followed suit are particularly harsh and particularly punitive. For example, that one would have allowed someone who went to the University of Minnesota to use their ID, but if you went to Hamlin or a private college, you couldn't. There was no exception for assisted living or nursing homes or others and so forth. So I'm all for potential visual verification. And what I'm interested in is a meeting of the minds where you could have visual verification without the requirement of a particular ID. Let me tell you what I mean. And let me tell you what some of the the, uh, the folks in the field from a technical standpoint say. Imagine a system where someday, hopefully soon, someone's photo could be preloaded into a laptop or some sort of device And um, there's your visual verification. If they don't have such a photo, their picture could simply be taken at the polling place. That, I think, is a way you could get a meeting of the minds. But what I don't want to have happen and what I'm always guarding against in the Minnesota legislature and federally is, you know, every day, every doctor and every nurse has to make a judgment call about whether a proposed cure is worse than the disease. In Minnesota, we have a microscopic problem with... uh, 
people doing what they shouldn't with misconduct. You don't want to pass a law that will get at those handfuls of people, relatively speaking, but will disenfranchise or shut out many tens of thousands or more eligible voters, eligible voters. You don't want to do that. That's an example of uh, the cure not fitting the disease. And so, so uh, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, would you put that in the category of uh, voter suppression uh, yeah. uh, requirement like that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky question, a fair question. Um, you know, I'm not one who reflexively says that everything I disagree with is voter suppression. Could it suppress some votes if people were eligible? Yes, it could. And my worry there is you might shut people out who are eligible voters, eligible legal voters. Uh, and we don't want to do that if we don't have to do that, particularly where the incidence of the, the disease here is so, so small that uh, it just wouldn't justify the kind of sweeping effect that this might have. Another caller, Roger in Mendota Heights. Hi, Roger. Go ahead. Well, hi there. Yeah, my question, Steve, is do you ever foresee us, I'll call it, get into the 21st century where we use a vote by Social Security number? If we had a system where you could do that, you could be authenticated through your Social Security number, your birth date, etc., and then all the claims of voter fraud, voting twice, dead people voting, uh, illegal people voting, all of that would be completely abolished because it wouldn't, it's not possible. Uh, Social Security knows when, you're, when somebody is dead. Uh, Social Security is, our numbers aren't given to uh, uh, illegal immigrants. Okay. What about that? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Roger. I, I've never been asked that question before. I mean, I guess it's intriguing. I don't know that that alone would provide the guarantees of trustworthiness for a lot of reasons I could think of. But since you raised the topic of Social Security numbers, um, just a couple of reminders for your listeners. We screen all voter registrations through multiple databases from the courts, from the Department of Public Safety, but we also screen them through so-called death indexes. I know that doesn't sound very fun, does it? But we do that, including the Social Security death index. So Social Security Administration does, in fact, keep track of who's died, and we want to make sure we filter those folks out. That's just one example of something we do. And remember, when you order an absentee ballot in Minnesota, So if you go to that website, mnvotes.org, order the ballot to come to you, like uh, a large majority of Minnesotans did in some form, if you do that, you have to provide either the last four of your Social Security number or you have to provide a driver's license number. And then when you return the ballot that you get in the mail, you have to do the same. That is a security feature that has not only worked really, really well, but is copied and envied. I've had uh, secretaries of state from both political parties say, hey, we like what you guys are doing. Can we do that? How did you do that? We imposed that in Minnesota in 2009 after the knockdown drag out 2008 Frank and Coleman recount. And that has really served us well. Uh, another idea you hear proposed uh, from Republicans generally is to do away with same day registration, set up a provisional ballot system like other states have. So if someone's uh, eligibility is in doubt. The ballot would be set aside and until it's resolved, then you count it. Uh, where are, do you come down on that? I oppose that. Why? We have had same-day or election-day voter registration in Minnesota since 1974. This is not something new. This is not a Johnny-come-lately. We've had this for a long time. It has had bipartisan support, but there have been some people who have had it in their sights for a long, long time. I think it would be wrong. That is kind of the jewel in the crown, in some senses, of Minnesota election law. It accounts That ease of voting, that ease of registration accounts for a big chunk of enthusiasm about participation. Keep in mind, in many other states that don't have that, there's a cutoff. If you don't register to vote, say, a month before, like early October in a November election, if you don't do that, you're out of luck. There is no excuse. There is no workaround. There is no do-ever, do-over. Not so in Minnesota where you can go to your polling place on game day, on election day. Maybe you've had a recent name change. Maybe you've had an address change. That affords a lot of people uh, a real opportunity. And again, an example of a, something that's used in a widespread way. This is not some niche boutique service. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Minnesotans every election use this. It's a mainstream thing that people like. It served us extremely well and opened the doors for a lot of eligible voters. 
If you could uh, get one thing to pass through the legislature on, on elections this year, what would it be? Well, it's something that I think is not uh, on the list uh, for this year, but I think uh, a real coming together where red and blue Republicans and Democrats can agree as they have in other states is what's commonly known as automatic voter registration. Um, it is a win-win. There are reasons conservatives should like it. There are reasons progressives should like it. Multiple states of various political complexions have passed it. It means kind of what it sounds like. It means people would be presumptively registered. They could always opt out. It's a great way to clean up and strengthen our voting rolls in Minnesota. Do you think any changes will pass this year? I mean, it's been sort of a tradition that they have to be bipartisan. Right. Um, I think there is the opportunity to have a, a meeting of the minds on some things. I, I sure hope uh, there is. The bills in the House and the Senate, as you might expect, given who controls which chamber, look a lot different from one another. But I hope they can harmonize in the next two, three weeks uh, a version of some things that can just make life easier for voters and the people who tend to them and administer elections. Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you'll come back as the year goes on. Maybe we can talk more about the campaign as we go. I hope so. Thank you. Uh, we're going to uh, review the week in at the state capitol in just a minute. But first, let's get a news update. Uh, Stephen John is here. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Mike. A flood watch is posted across northwestern Minnesota for the potential for more heavy rain in an area that's seen flooding over the past week. The Weather Service says rain is forecast to move into that area today and expand across Minnesota and continue through much of the weekend. Thousands of firefighters have continued to slow the advance of destructive wildfires in the southwestern U.S., but they're bracing for the return of the same dangerous conditions today that sparked and spread the wind-fueled blazes a week ago. At least 166 Six homes have been destroyed in one rural county in northeast New Mexico since last Friday. Relatives say a former U.S. Marine has been killed alongside Ukrainian forces in what's the first known death of an American citizen fighting in the war against Russia. Rebecca Cabrera tells CNN her 22-year-old son, Willie Joseph Cancel, was killed Monday while working for a military contracting company that sent him to Ukraine. The U.S. government has not confirmed the death. A Taliban spokesman says a power powerful explosion at a Sunni mosque in Kabul has killed at least 10 worshippers and wounded 20. The blast struck as hundreds had gathered on the last Friday of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. The source of the explosion was not immediately known and no one has claimed responsibility. Meanwhile, the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan has claimed responsibility for a pair of deadly car bombings in the country's north yesterday. Cloudy skies across the state at this hour. It's 55 degrees in the Twin Cities. This is NPR News. Programming supported by Sala Architects, committed to creating thoughtfully crafted and intimately connected design solutions for a wide range of architectural projects. More at salaarc.com. Sala Architects. Simple, natural, timeless. It's easy now for scientists to share the genetic sequences of the latest strain of COVID-19. But some research simply can't be done without the virus itself. That's where things get complicated. The transfer of items is often done rather informally and rather intransparently. But then if you want to try to go back and figure out who has what, where, when, and why, it can be really hard. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday coming up at 1 right here on NPR News. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. The week at the Minnesota Capitol started with a State of the State speech back in the House chamber by Governor Tim Walls, and it's ending with a deal on pandemic bonus pay and refilling the Unemployment Trust Fund. There are lots of deals, though, yet to be made with just a few weeks remaining in the session. Here to give us a Friday Week in Review are two reporters who cover the Capitol. Our own Tim Pugmire is on the line and a special guest, Dana Ferguson, the Capitol correspondent for the Forum News Service. Thanks to both of you for coming on. And Dana, let me start with you. It seems like this deal on the pandemic pay and uh, the unemployment insurance seems like it could have happened a lot earlier in the session. What took them so long? I think everybody was really dug in and just hoping to get as much out of the deal as they possibly could. Um, Naturally, when you're making a negotiation, that's something that you would do, but they just waited until the very last second. Uh, hang on, Dana. We're having a we're having a little trouble with your microphone. This uh, this uh, happens only when we have people in the studio, which we haven't done for a while. 
So, Tim Pugmire, let me turn to you and ask you, why do you think it took so long to get this deal? Well, uh, as Dana, I think, was saying, uh, each (laughs) side had some very specific uh, things that they had in mind that they wanted to see in this package. And there was uh, a lot of digging in of heels and not much movement and uh, persistence finally paid off, but uh, man, it took a long time. This was uh, this was the subject of uh, numerous uh, meetings and and uh, speculation of a potential special session uh, all of last summer. So mm-hmm. they've been at it a while. And Dana, does the fact that they finally have a deal now is that a good sign for the end of the session, or is it a bad sign because it took them so long? I think you could see it either way. The leaders would tell you that it makes them more optimistic that they can work together. And now that this is cleared off of their plates, they have a little more time and a little more focus to look at all of those other supplemental budget bills and to really focus on those issues rather than trying to figure out this one that's taken just so long. Um, Mm. And they've been so dug in. So a fresh start, maybe for them. Well, um, I've been I've been wondering Jim. about that for quite a while because <laughs> uh, so much time and energy went into these negotiations, and you just wonder how much uh, how much goodwill is left in the tank here for the the final push. Well, Dana, and the differences are not insubstantial. I mean, you've got a huge gap between what they want to do on taxes and spending, right? A massive difference between each of them. Uh, We see fundamentally different tax proposals coming forward, not to mention the fact that the governor um, has some light tax proposals he's putting forth, but really is more concerned about a one-time $500 check. And so you would think some amalgamation of these things would end up uh, becoming the deal at the end of session. But since it took them three months to reach this first deal, it's hard to know just how close they could come or if they'll leave everything and decide, you know, we don't have to get anything done. And so we'll leave that money for the next legislature. Mm -hmm. And Tim Pugmire, one of the one of the areas where you see the biggest difference, I think, is in the uh, school spending uh, proposals. Um, It's it's big in the House and not very big at all in the Senate, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, The House passed the education bill on Wednesday, and it uh, provides new resources to school districts. uh, But rather than adding to the basic funding formula, which is typically what you hear about every two years, House Democrats decided to go in a different direction by putting this money from the budget surplus into things like special education and English language learner programs, school support staff. Uh, The educators have complained about these things for a long time. Uh, House Republicans uh, criticized the bill as as too much, uh, too many new mandates. And the Senate next week will take up its education bill, which spends far less on schools. And uh, uh, we could have a long uh, negotiation to, to, to try to resolve these bills. Yeah, well, not too long because there's only a little over three weeks left to go. Um, And Dana, is it fair to say that uh, because the Senate wants to cut taxes by, I think it's $5 billion this year and and more as you you go into the out years, is, I mean, it's just a fundamental difference, right? They want to cut taxes with the surplus and the Democrats in the House want to spend a lot of that money. They do. And it's worth noting, too, that the House Democrats have plans to cut taxes, but it's more targeted. They want to help out renters, homeowners, uh, folks who have student loans, parents. But what the Senate Republicans are proposing is just a massive income tax cut. And they're hoping that that would apply to everyone who has to pay an income tax, as well as the uh, eliminating the tax on Social Security benefits. So that costs a lot of money. Democrats are very much opposed to that idea. And they say, with this money the state has in surplus funding, that the state shouldn't be helping corporations or folks with a lot of money. They'd like to see it really honed in on those who have had a really hard time with the pandemic and still need a little bit of help. Well, let me ask you about another big issue. Um, 
that a lot of people are concerned about, and that is rising crime and public safety. Uh, there was that report this week from the state human rights department on uh, the Minneapolis Police Department and patterns or practices of of racial discrimination there. It was really really tough report. Um, does that have any impact on this debate over public safety? As far as you can tell, I think the House is debating their bill today, right? They are, and I'm sure that we are going to hear an awful lot about that coming from House Democrats. But. Um, as soon as the report came out, there was just very little conversation about it at the Capitol. Some comments came forth from the governor's office in the form of a statement uh, from the Posse Caucus, but it just didn't make quite as big an impact as we saw in the city of Minneapolis or just in the community here quite as much as it did at the Capitol and not as much in greater Minnesota as far as I've seen. Hmm. Tim Pugmire, what do you think about that? Well, Republicans have been critical in the past about the need to support police. Uh, They want to stop the anti-police rhetoric as they uh, hear it uh, because they think it can embolden criminals, uh, among other things. And uh, they could bring it up, but uh, we'll see. Uh, The debate will begin later this afternoon. It's unclear. Clearly, these amendments that have been pre-filed don't really go there. They're uh, on other specific topics. Uh, The Minneapolis delegation uh, put out something this week calling for change, but uh, there was really no specifics uh, in that statement as far as what changes are needed. And uh, it almost seems too late in terms of this bill to address anything specifically, Hmm. Of course, a lot of negotiating left to do because it differs so much from the Senate bill that that was passed earlier this week. And just uh, to touch on those differences a little bit, the uh, Senate bill is more uh, geared toward uh, longer prison sentences, and the House bill is more geared toward putting money into communities to try to uh, get at the roots of crime, right? Yeah, that's right. Both the governor and the House DFL uh, are interested in these grants to uh, nonprofit community groups that uh, do work on fighting crime. Uh, the Senate Republicans have said it, it's untested and they, uh, they, they're they not ready to go there, yet they want more information. Um, so we will see their bill, the Senate Republican bill, touches on police recruitment, courts, prisons, other things. And, uh, of course, it's got that big requirement uh, that members of the Sentencing Guidelines Commission would have to get Senate approval if they are members who are appointed by the governor. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, go back to where I started this uh, conversation, Dana. Um, You were at the governor's speech on Sunday night at the Capitol? I was, yes. Was it a good idea to to do it on a Sunday night? Because especially with just so so little time left in the session, uh, it seems like a lot of legislators would enjoy having a Sunday night off. And I think especially after this exceptionally long week of just grueling debates and votes and taking up so many very hearty issues, they're burned out. The legislators are burned out. They're ready to go home. They were ready to go home last night, but couldn't quite get the conference committee report done. Um, the attendance was relatively sparse at the Capitol compared to what we've seen in previous years. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that now that they have the remote option have just come to really appreciate it and figured out this is something we'd rather be doing at home and we can watch and then come in on Monday Um And some people just didn't watch it at all. We heard that from uh, Senate Majority Leader Miller that he was at a baseball game with his kids and didn't watch it as far as we heard from him on Monday morning. So it just didn't have quite the impact or the news value as some of the other updates we've gotten from the governor. Mm. And more than anything, he said, please just get along and help one another out so we can close this thing out on time. Right, right. Tim, there there didn't seem to be a, a lot of news in the governor's speech. I mean, he, he talked pretty much about the proposals he's he was laying out even before the session started. Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, uh, I think the governor had some symbolism in mind here. Uh, that it was important to give this speech 
at some point, uh, it, just to kind of show that uh, things are are back, getting back to normal at the Capitol. Uh, so it, it probably served that purpose. But right, in terms of, of substance, it, it didn't do much for legislative work that's uh, already well underway. And, and Sunday night, uh, very questionable. I, I, I kind of long for the days of a, of a noon weekday uh, state of the state. Yeah, noon noon Fridays are always good, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and maybe future governors or this governor in the future will, uh, if he gets the chance, will take that to mind. What does the governor want, Dana? I mean, what what is what do you think he needs to end this session with? I think as far as what we've seen from him going around the state and really trying to build up support for his proposals, he'd love to have those checks sent out to folks who are under a certain income threshold. Um, that's a really popular proposal around the state, um, getting money right to folks. Uh, obviously, the legislative leaders haven't picked up on that quite as much. They haven't put it in their priority uh, proposals. Um, and then also doing something on public safety, finding some kind of compromise that helps recruitment, but also does kind of prevention programming, preventing violence. Um, and getting more mental health and other supports out to communities. Those are, I think, the two biggest things. There are many others he mentioned, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, almost out I of think time. The governor, oh, hang on, Tim. I think the governor... <laughs> hang on, Tim. I want to ask Dana, since she's our special guest. Uh, we're almost out of time. Do you think they're going to get major things done here in the remaining three-plus weeks they have here to go? Maybe I'm an optimist, but I think there are some things they can get done. It might not be massive amounts, but bare, bare bills in a lot of different areas. I think they can do it. All right. We'll see. Uh, We'll hold you to that. Uh, Thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. That's Dana Ferguson. She covers the state capitol for Forum News Service. Tim Pugmire from NPR News was here, too, and I cut him off so you can always go to the website and look up Tim's work. (laughs) And just a reminder, uh, President Biden will be in Minneapolis on Sunday to speak at a memorial service for Walter Mondale. We'll have that on the website, nprnews.org, at 1.30 Sunday afternoon. That'll do it for our Friday program. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Support comes from Cornell College, where a private liberal arts education is immersive, flexible, and taught one course at a time, inviting Minnesota students to road trip to Cornell College to learn about the Freeway Scholarship.